Turn with me then to our sermon text for today, which is in Genesis. It is not long. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. As you're turning there, remember that this portion of Scripture from chapter 5 to this part of chapter 6 is a unit in Genesis introduced by the phrase that this is the book of the generations of Adam. Uh, We had looked at, you know, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, and they were created. This is what became of them. This is the generations of Adam. This is what became of him and his uh, his family. Um, After this passage, we're going to find these are the generations of Noah. Uh, But Noah's been introduced. We're going to find the account, though, of Noah and what happened to him and his family uh, in the next section. Uh, But... uh, uh, chapter 5, so far in this section, has traced generations from Adam to Noah and has uh, spoken of those who have called upon the name of the Lord, especially uh, Enoch being an example and how God took Enoch as an example of how God would uh, deliver his people, uh, his people of grace, uh, from the death that so prevailed over mankind. Now, these eight verses, the conclusion of this section, tell of how mankind multiplied on the earth. But rather than multiplying and filling the earth with God's image and glory, instead mankind fills the earth with wickedness. So let's read Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. Lord God, we thank you for giving us the revelation of yourself and of your deeds. We pray that you would help us to better understand ourselves and our world and uh, you, our Savior and our God. We pray that you would bless all that has been read and all that will be said about it for our edification, for our conviction, for our growth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've said, this this passage talks about uh, the multiplication of mankind on the earth, mankind, As mankind grows, he was made in the image of God, and so he was supposed to reflect God's glory and character and to uh, bear 
uh, God's dominion, to be a, a, an emblem, like, like God's flag all over the earth, that uh, his, uh, the earth was his and the fullness thereof, and this was his vice regent upon the earth, who was to, uh, to be like God and taking dominion and subduing the earth and filling the earth. And mankind, indeed, continues to multiply and to fill the earth, um, but he does not fill it with uh, the righteousness and glory of God. Uh, instead, we find something has gone quite wrong. Uh, mankind has rebelled against God, and instead of increasing the display of God's glory as mankind filled the earth, instead, uh, wickedness became great. Um, uh, not, not even so much that mankind continue to get worse and worse, uh, although everyone's uh, sins typically feed off of each other. And if you get you know, three people uh, and their sins all mixed together, usually it will manifest itself all the more. But it's, it's particularly because mankind is increasing. And that sin that dwells in his heart becomes more and more evident, more and more expressed, even as we saw from, from Adam to, to Cain to, to Lamech, that this uh, continues to grow on the earth as mankind multiplies on the face of the earth. And that's the, uh, how this section begins, how man began to multiply on the face of the land. Uh, and uh, this wickedness was increased on the earth and evident to God. And this is the, the pitiful state of mankind. Uh, it is to described here uh, so that we might see it, uh, to admit it, to turn from it, to take hold of the grace of God by which alone any one of us can stand before him. More specifically, I want you to learn from this passage four things. Uh, first of all, to beware bad marriages. We'll find that in the first four verses. Uh, second, to confess the wickedness of man, you know, man generally, and how we are part of mankind. Um, uh, third, to behold God's response to sin that we find described here. And then finally, to, say, to seek the favor of God. We see not all is in vain. There is a way uh, to God, and we find that in his response or his relation with Noah. First, then, let's consider some bad marriages. Uh, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, uh, we find an event that takes place that uh, is not the origin of, of sin, certainly, but it does contribute to this state uh, that um, is the case <clears throat> before the flood, and it involves the sons of God and the daughters of men. Now, there is some dispute about the proper interp interpretation of this passage, but in any case... Uh, the, I think the application is to not be unequally yoked with rebels in a rebellious way. Uh, to not be like these sons of God or these daughters of men. To, to seek a spouse when you are seeking a spouse, when you are single, or as you are growing up and thinking, what, what will you do when you grow up? To seek one according to God's design for marriage. Incidentally, I it's interesting how Noah had his three sons after he was 500 years old, much older than any of the others. Perhaps he had other children who walked away, and the Bible says nothing about, but I almost wonder if he took a long time to find a wife in the state of the earth as it was. Um, his, his wife did seem to be uh, a godly one that went on the ark with him. In any case, he did, uh, did well and did better than lots, as we'll find later in Genesis 
But in any case, to, to avoid being like uh, these sons of God and daughters of men. Now, there are uh, basically three interpretations that have been taken on this passage. I think really the first two have more merit than the last one, but I'll mention all three. Uh, the first interpretation is that the sons of God who had children by the daughters of men were rebellious angels, uh, led astray by lust, joining forces with fallen humanity by unlawful marriages that transgressed God's design. God designed uh, marriage to be between uh, humanity, to be uh, between one man and one woman, uh, to, to be one flesh, and uh, there is a great transgression that occurs here by the sons of God being a reference to, to angelic beings who are rebelling against God and joining forces with sinful man. The second view uh, is that the sons of God are not angelic beings, that they are uh, the, the godly Sethites, those who were heirs of promise, who were being brought up among the people of God, uh, who it turns out were not uh, truly regenerate, but who had professed the faith, uh, who apostatized then through intermarriage with the ungodly line of Cain, or at least the, 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 the uh, rebellious mankind around them. Uh, so that the sons of God were also sons of men, but they were, on top of that, children of God uh, through faith. Uh, but they weren't not actually of faith. They appeared to be so, uh, but through intermarrying with the uh, Cainites, uh, that either they or at least their children uh, fell away, and that would explain why only Noah was left uh, by the end of this period. Uh, the third interpretation is that the sons of God were powerful rulers, and they were gathering harems, you know, maybe like Lamech had, had been doing. Um, that one I don't find as strong because uh, polygamy is not explicitly mentioned here. It does say that they took wives, but it says they took wives. So obviously, you had multiple theys, then you'd have multiple wives. It's uh, not explicitly the, the problem that uh, is described here. And like I said, in any case, we have a warning against bad marriages that go against God's design uh, and uh, God's intention for, for a good marriage. Um, now, let me go ahead and give you some arguments in favor of each one. I'm not particularly strong at this point, as, at one over the other. That's why I'm emphasizing what's still true, regardless of which way you take it. Um, but uh, if, I want you also to be responsible in taking a position here as well. Uh, so let me briefly review some of these things. Arguments in favor of the first, what I'm just going to call the angelic view. The idea that these are supernatural or at least non-human beings that um, are, are, are rebelling and falling and, and taking uh, human wives. Uh, first argument is that when the term sons of God is used in the Old Testament, it refers to angels. You know, when this exact phrase is used, uh, it always refers to uh, angels. In, in Job, in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 38, the sons of God uh, praised God when they saw the earth being created. Um, there's a possible other reference in Deuteronomy in chapter 32, although that's more disputed. And there's a similar phrase, uh, sons of God or sons of the mighty, uh, in Psalm 29 and 89 that also refer to angels or ESV just translated as, as heavenly beings. Um, second argument is that the daughters of men are the daughters of the men who began to multiply on the earth. In verse 1, it simply introduces mankind. And now mankind began to multiply and had daughters. We just had chapter 5 where all these people had sons and daughters. So it's natural to think of 
uh, mankind being both the godly and the ungodly, and that it is human daughters, human women, that are being spoken of um, in verse 2, then in contrast to some other kind of being. The third argument would be that uh, in the ancient world, the angelic interpretation would not have been very weird. It is definitely very weird uh, to us to think about, and that's one of the the -the on-the-surface problems with this interpretation, the idea that spiritual beings could have children by uh, humans. But in the ancient world, most of the nations had similar stories of of godlike beings uh, having these relations with humans and having human uh, descendants, uh, whether it was the the Greeks, the Syrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians. So for its original readers, it would not have been as odd. Fourth argument would be that Jude and 2 Peter um, seem to allude to Jewish writings that interpreted Genesis in this way when it talks about the fall of the angels, that it could be referring to particular angels in a particular fall, in this case, in the days before the flood. Um, Jude even seems to compare the sin of those angels to the sin of Sodom, which likewise committed sexual immorality and went after strange flesh, um, a similar type of transgression, although a different transgression. Um, you can go back to my sermon on Second Peter to see how I uh, try to discuss that passage. And then uh, fifth, First Peter describes the spirits in prison who were disobedient in Noah's day. Uh, that could be taken to refer to these fallen angels who were disobedient in Noah's day that then, as a judgment, were cast into prison and now await judgment. Um, finally, if this was an angelic fall, this would be a second instance in which humanity uh, joined forces with angelic rebels. Um, Satan is the one who led the woman astray, uh, certainly not in the same way, but through temptation. And this could be another unholy alliance between um, the, the demonic and human uh, rebellion. What is described here is, uh, is what is, intended, is seen as a marriage. Uh, it says they took them as wives. Um, which implies that the, these daughters of men and their fathers you know, were, were consenting to this, uh, that this was uh, something that humanity was complicit in, uh, that these were regarded as lawful unions, although they were not in God's sight. They were not the way God designed marriage to be. Um, and so God's judgment on mankind for this would have been just because the, the daughters and their fathers were culpable and the children that were raised in this environment, imitating their parents in ungodliness, would continue to go astray. Um, additionally, this angelic view is the earliest one recorded uh, interpretation-wise of you know, outside scripture. What did people think? About this passage seems to be the most common during the time of Christ. The Sethite view, though, would rise to prominence in the 4th century, supported by men like Chrysostom and uh, Augustine. It certainly has many people that speak in its favor as well. Now, again, if you take this position, do so cautiously. Not going beyond what Scripture says. Some people go some crazy directions uh, with this. Uh, we don't want to follow uh, legends and myths. Uh, scripture warns us against that. Um, the sons of God going into the daughters of men is described as something that belonged to those days. Uh, in those days, when the sons of God went into the daughters of men. Um, not something that would be a present threat today. 
there are Nephilim later mentioned in Numbers, but they were not necessarily uh, born the same way. Nephilim could simply mean giant, you know, big bad guy, uh, not necessarily uh, born in the same way here. And it's not even explicitly clear that the Nephilim were the offspring in question, uh, although it, it seems like that is probably likely. Also, the offspring that are described are human offspring. There's no mention here of some, you know, half, an, half angel, half human, demonoid, you know, weird person. Uh, they're human. They're, they're flesh. Uh, and they're judged as such. Uh, so don't, don't go too weird in that direction either. Uh, if you take this interpretation. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Now, that was to be said in the favor that these were the, the sons of God being rebellious uh, angels or spiritual beings and um, having offspring by uh, human wives. For the other interpretation, which I'm going to call the Sethite interpretation, that the uh, sons of God were descendants of Seth, those among the godly community who called upon the name of the Lord, but uh, intermarried with those who were not of like faith and contributed to apostasy. In its argument is that, well, God doesn't really sp- speak in judgment about fallen angels. He, he judges mankind in, in this context. Um, second, it's natural to expect an explanation for the apostasy of most of Seth's line. As you're going along the story, how did it end up with only Noah? You know, where did everyone go? Uh, this would offer an explanation for how much of that line fell away. Um, also, Genesis so far has recounted the growth of two peoples, the, the offspring of the woman, the offspring of the serpent, how there's been the city of God and the city of man, these two peoples developing in different ways. And so in context, it's not a stretch to take the sons of God and the daughters of men as referring to the same division that's already been introduced. Fourth, the exact phrase, sons of God, is not used of God's people in the Old Testament, but very similar phrases uh, are used of God's people. So, like Israelites are called sons of the Lord your God in Deuteronomy 14.1. Israel is called God's firstborn son in Exodus 4. Uh, The very language of being made in God's image is an analogy to sonship, uh, just as Adam had a son in his image. Uh, So it's not a stretch to take that uh, phrase in reference to the godly people. Also, the problem of intermarriage with pagans, uh, although you could still find an analogy in the other interpretation, but the, uh, the problem of intermarriage with pagans leading God's people astray into idolatry would have been a very familiar theme, or should have been a very familiar theme, to the Israelites who might have been the first readers of Genesis, who were also being told by Moses Don't intermarry with the Canaanites when you go into that land, lest they draw you astray uh, from the living God. Perhaps, though, the main reason, or one of the reasons, why people don't, why people take the Sethite view is angels can't reproduce with humans, right? Um, And the the main verse that people will go to is in Matthew 22, verse 30, or parallel passages, where Jesus says, For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And also, if angels in heaven uh, do not marry, then um, would we expect these angels to be marrying in in Genesis? Um, In response to that, the other view would say, well, the, the primary comparison in that passage, especially when you look at Luke's version, is that 
these people will be immortal like angels, you know, that they will not be given in marriage because they will not die, uh, for they'll be equal to angels. Yet it's fair to conclude from this verse that angels in heaven do not marry and do not even, uh, yeah, they do not marry. But this doesn't necessarily contradict the possibility that rebellious angels on earth might have once married the daughters of men. Now, it's also fair to conclude that angels cannot reproduce more angels, that their number is fixed, that God created a fixed number of angels, and they're not related by generations the way humans are. Uh, But Genesis 6 describes the production of human offspring, not angelic or demonic offspring. Um, And then finally, in response, notice also that the angels that came to Abram and Lot, they were angels, they were spiritual beings, and yet they appeared in human form, and they even ate food on both occasions. Uh, So they had some biological processes as they took on form to appear to man. And so we have to be careful what we can dogmatically say what angels can or cannot do. Um, And when they appear, and this is a good point just generally about angels, whenever angels appear, they always appear as men, not women. If you look at a lot of popular images of angels, uh, sometimes they're babies, sometimes they look like women, sometimes they look like men, sometimes they look kind of effeminate men, because a lot of popular images of angels is based on the uh, appearance of eunuchs in the Persian Empire, and um, there's, there's uh, portrayals of angels today that um, can prove a little misleading, but in scripture they always appear uh, as men. All right. So sons of God marrying daughters of men. In either case, it was bad. In either case, this was um, a part of the rebellion of mankind, um, even if there was supernatural involvement or or preternatural involvement of spiritual beings. In any case, mankind was complicit, and it furthered uh, the depravity of mankind as children were raised, Uh, the problem of intermarriage with other rebels, uh, that it would influence uh, their children. And so in any case, we have a warning against uh, bad marriages, that we are told to marry in accord with God's law and God's design, not after strange flesh, but one man and one woman, to look to his ordinance of marriage to define it, and also to marry in the Lord, uh, that indeed the marriage of unbelievers is a true marriage, but if you are a Christian, uh, you have a duty to marry in the Lord. We find that in, at least in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul talks about the, uh, the widow who is free to marry and yet in the Lord. Uh, a Christian should marry fellow believer uh, for their own sake, that they might not be led astray, and for also for their offspring's sake, that they might be raised uh, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Um, also a lesson here is to not be led only by external appearance. Um, these uh, sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. Now, does that mean you can't choose someone who is attractive? No. You know, uh, being attractive physically is a blessing, uh, but it's also not the most important thing. It is uh, a good thing, uh, but it is not a sufficient reason uh, to, to choose Someone, as Proverbs says, there are more deep and substantial things to look for that are prove themselves over time, like the fear of God. Um, and so, do not let be led only by external appearance. Amen. 
or young men, as you are getting raised up and growing older, to seek a woman who will be a helper fit for you. That's what marriage was intended to be, not just someone pretty. Uh, to be a helper, to be one who is uh, corresponding to you, to be as your rib, to be your trusty support, to be a companion for life. Uh, women, uh, to seek a man who you can trust to be your head, uh, to, to be a leader who will care for you with love, uh, to again be a companion for life. Both women and men uh, ought to seek a spouse who will be a good parent for their future children, a good grandparent for their grandchildren, you know, to think ahead at the life to come. A bad marriage, a bad decision regarding marriage can prove disastrous. Uh, Deuteronomy 7 warned of the danger in uh, intermarriage with the Canaanites, that they would lead them astray. And what happened when Solomon did that? It led him astray into uh, unfaithfulness. Uh, Proverbs speaks realistically of the uh, dangers of a poorly and unwisely chosen marriage and the grief it brings. Of course, God's direction to those seeking marriage is different than its direction to those in marriage. Uh, For example, one should only marry a believer, but if a Christian is married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever consents to live together, the Christian should not get divorced. Uh, Only adultery and willful desertionists cannot be remedied by the church or state. Uh, Only those things can justify a divorce. In fact, it's the binding obligation of marriage that makes the choice of a spouse uh, so important and so uh, weighty. Uh, Marriage is so binding and weighty that when the disciples of Christ understood this, they said, if that's the case, it's better not to marry. Uh, What was Jesus' response? Was his response, you're right, no one should get married. No, his response was, uh, only some were gifted for singleness. Even if a bad marriage can prove disastrous, a good marriage is a great blessing. And even a faulty marriage has many advantages and blessings to it. So the message here is not to discourage marriage, but to counsel wisdom and prudence in the choice of a spouse. Choose a spouse in accord with God's design for marriage and in the Lord. Thus much on the first four verses there, the sons of God and the daughters of men. Look at verse 5, though. Verse 5 begins to describe what God then sees as he sees uh, humanity multiplying upon the face of the earth. And what does that look like? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is a horrible description. I mean, it's a true description, but it is describing something indeed uh, fearful and and horrible and uh, sad. Verse 5 does not only describe mankind at that time. The truth is affirmed after the flood too in chapter 8 that the intention of man's heart is evil from its youth. Um, This is the natural state of fallen mankind that expressed itself, made itself visible in those days before the flood. With time, mankind had grown and his sin had expressed itself more plainly, uh, but humanity was just revealing what was in the heart, uh, revealing now its fallen nature. And this verse describes what we mean by total depravity. That's the kind of Calvinistic word to describe the the fallen nature of man, uh, that depravity is another word for wickedness. 
and uh, it is uh, complete. As this passage says, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wickedness is found deep, not to surface level, but into the intentions of the thoughts of the heart. It is continual, you know, all the days, literally, uh, all the time, and only evil. Not only are man's actions sinful, but every intention of the thoughts of his heart are sinful. Sin does not only refer to harmful deeds, which are more obviously sinful, where you hurt someone, but also to unlawful desires, unlawful thoughts. In fact, some of man's external actions can be in conformity to God's law. An unbeliever could save your life, and that would be a good benefit to you. But they are still sinful and blamable before God, evil, because of the intention of the heart. For example, the Pharisees gave alms to the poor. I'm sure the the poor appreciated that. It did them good. But the Pharisees did it for the praise of man, and they received their reward by getting the praise of man. It was not pleasing to God. Pride and lust and greed and idolatry and other sinful motives twist the mind and the heart and stain all the deeds of the natural man. The mind and the will and the affections of man are slaves of sin, inclined to evil, in rebellion against God. That's why our confession of faith says that from this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, from that corruption do proceed all actual transgressions, all transgressions that we do by act. Or as Romans, of course, higher authority than our confession, says... Uh, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so is anyone able to justify themselves in the eyes of God? God sees you. He knows your heart. He knows your intentions and desires. He as well as your words and your deeds. He will bring everything into judgment. For God made man to love him with all his heart, his soul, his mind, and his strength, to love his neighbor as himself. All of man, inside and out, must conform to God's law, is accountable. But that's not what God finds. He sees that the wickedness of man is great. He sees continual rebellion. He sees that all the faculties of man, you know, his will, his affections, his mind, they are like rebel soldiers, all refusing to conform to the will of their creator. So do not justify yourself before God. Do not trust in your own righteousness. Do not rest upon that one good thing, you know, that you think you did that maybe could counterweight all the other stuff. Mankind is corrupt, cannot bring something pure out of that which is impure. Confess yourself a sinner and rest upon his mercy. As the psalmist says, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. But instead give thanks to God for his mercy and salvation. That is the way we are by nature now, second nature, our fallen nature. That is where we are apart from God's help and grace. 
If the every intention of man's thoughts is evil, then the very first movement of true repentance and faith is God's gift. We cannot begin to love God. We cannot begin to uh, have faith in God when we are by nature hostile to God. And so when you find yourself believing in God, when you have exercised that faith and do begin to believe and to love God and to hate your sins, give thanks to God for that grace. It is by the grace of God that we are not like what God describes here in chapter 6. If we find that we are not where the intention of our thoughts of our hearts is only evil continually, it is only by the grace of God. So be humble before God and man. What do you have that you have not received? We are unable of ourselves to save ourselves or to stand before him. We must cast away any of that dependence upon our deeds, upon our righteousness, and live alone by God's mercy. We were all conceived with the same depraved nature as the rest of mankind, dead in trespasses and sin. And it's only because God in mercy caused us to rise and live with Christ that any of us be saved. To make this point go even further, let's look at the next point, the God's response to sin in verses 6 through 7. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Look at God's response to what he sees. God is grieved by the wickedness of man, and he is moved by his justice to wipe it all out by his judgment. This is where the flood comes in. The flood is going to be described next, that he is now declaring his intention. What is he going to do? He's going to wipe it all out. And what motivates him to act in this way? Verse 6 explains that he regretted that he made man and that it grieved him to his heart. Now, it says that the Lord regretted that he had made man. Can, can the Lord, the sovereign of all, who sees and knows all things, can he have regret? Can he make mistakes? Well, God cannot make mistakes. Uh, God is not like man. Who, he does not lie. does not regret, in, in a sense. And I say that because 1 Samuel 15 says, uh, The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. All right? So that seems like pretty simple. It says it right there. But actually, in that same chapter, God says, I regret that I have made Saul king. So, can God have regret? Yes and no. Uh, in one sense, but not in another sense. It doesn't mean that this contradicts itself, but in one sense, yes, he can have regret. In another sense, no. And part of it is because God is not like us, and so he doesn't have regret the same way we do, but Scripture is revealing God to us that we might understand something about him. On the one hand, God does not change. God is true to his word, and he ultimately directs all things for his purposes. On the other hand, though, that doesn't mean he's happy with every deed that's done. Uh, he might use it for good, but it still could be evil and not his intention for the way his creation was supposed to work, the way man was supposed to live. And so the language of regret is used when his will for man is disobeyed and when things go contrary to his design. 
In those cases, God does not change, but man has changed. God responds with sorrowful displeasure when man changes against him. And this scene of wickedness spreading through the spread of man was not God's will and design. Things have gone not the way I created them to go. I regret that I have made mankind because this was not my intention. Man was made to spread the image and the glory and the dominion of God throughout the earth. But now we just have wickedness. Furthermore, not only did he regret it that he made man, but, God's, uh, but man's wickedness grieved him. This word for grief is a, uh, is a, has a sense of pain and grief uh, internally, as well as the sense of being indignant or offended by an insult. For example, later in Genesis, Jacob's sons uh, are grieved in this way, or indignant, as the ESV translates it, when they hear that their sister Dinah has been defiled. That, that kind of uh, grief or vexation. It's an outrageous thing. God does not have passions the way that man does. He's not controlled by forces within him that overcome him. He's not contro- composed of parts. But what is said here teaches that God takes sin personally and is grieved and displeased with it, highly offended with it. This is outrageous. And so he responds. We find the similar use of this word in Psalm 78. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. So God sees all, and he is highly displeased with sin. It grieves him. It provokes him. He feels indignation at sin every day. He is a righteous judge, and he will take just vengeance upon his enemies. Sin is not something, therefore, for you to cherish. Sin is not something for you to delight in. Sin is not something to enjoy. It's no light thing. It's an insult and an outrageous thing to our God. God's response to sin demonstrates both the danger of the sinner as well as the horribleness of the sin itself. So imitate God. Regard sin that way, not as a delight, but with grief and hatred, with hostility and displeasure. Turn from your sin. Repudiate it. Say, I want nothing to do with it. Bear enmity with sin and not with God. But you might say, is there any hope for fallen man? If he is so uh, corrupt and God is so hostile... What hope do we have to repent and to turn away from such sin and to find favor in his eyes? But we are given hope in the final verse here, and that is with what I will conclude with. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor with God. There is a way of acceptance with God, even after the fall into sin. How can this be? How, how can mankind, who is naturally depraved and corrupt, Find favor in God's eyes? How could Noah withstand the judgment of God? How could he stand before God and find favor in his eyes? Well, God was not apparently reckoning his sins against him. He was instead regarding him as righteous in his sight, but that couldn't have been by his perfect justice. The phrase that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God did not exempt Noah. But God received him by grace and through faith. Just like he received Abel, just like he received Enoch, 
So Noah called upon the Lord and believed in his promise and was accepted by God, not on the basis of his works, but on the basis of the redemption that would be achieved by that seed of the woman, that promised Savior who would crush the serpent's head, Jesus Christ, whom we know all the more better today. Hebrews 11 described how did Noah receive his condemnation, not condemnation, his commendation, his good report uh, from God. How did he? By faith. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is a righteousness that is a gift that we receive by faith in God. And so seek the favor of God and rest upon his grace and mercy. Come to him saying, do not judge me for no one in your sight is, is pure and able to stand, but have mercy upon me and forgive my sins. Come to him not claiming the right to stand before him on the basis of your moral purity or your works, but come to him with faith in his mercy in Christ, faith in his promises of grace. Not that you have earned that place, but that you claim it, uh, that you have received it, receiving and resting upon his provision. Come to God knowing that he rewards those who seek him, not on the basis of strict judgment, but on the basis of his grace. So seek him. Seek his favor. Knock, and it will be open to you. Seek and you will find. So in review, as we see the uh, corruption of mankind on the eve of the flood in the days of Noah, uh, beware of bad marriages. Of course, that's one main example of uh, things that could lead people astray from uh, faithfulness and, and faith in God. But beware bad marriages. Confess the wickedness of man. Uh, agree with the testimony of God concerning ourselves. Confess your sins to Him, and then behold God's response to sin. And finally, seek the favor of God. The world on the eve of the flood was in a sorry state. Sin had shown its true colors, had vandalized God's creation and His image. But God would not be defeated. He would act as a judge. Nor was His image doomed. Nor would He completely scrap the project. Noah found favor in his eyes. May we as well. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your grace that though we have uh, cast aside uh, your righteousness and have been even conceived in sin and continue to bear that with us, even as those whom you have uh, given new life to, that we continue to struggle with this indwelling sin and, and understand the corruption from which you have brought us. We pray that you would continue to not count our sins against us, but as you have promised and as you have told us in your word, you would do that for Christ's sake, you would continue, that you would receive us as righteous in your sight and to grant us um, assurance of this and a peace of conscience that we might dwell before you uh, with joy and with peace and love. We pray that you would grant this uh, blessing uh, to those who are yet lost, who continue to dwell as slaves of sin, that you would uh, work through your powerful word to bring them out of that bondage and to bring them into the kingdom of your beloved Son. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.